You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, once again, welcome to Redemption Hill Church. A um, couple of thoughts before I get into the sermon. One, um, it's always a good reminder to say this. Uh, we are committed to preaching God's Word. Um, my hope is that you learn more from God, way more than you're ever going to learn from me. And so we preach through books of the Bible. That will continue to be our, our practice here at Redemption Hill Church. Just, I know you know that, but I think it's just always good to remind ourselves why do this. Well, it's God's Word, and we want to hear from, from God. And as you know, we're in our sermon series, The World Turned Upside Down. And we're seeing more of how the world is being turned upside down through these disciples. And Acts 13 presents for us a distinct shift in the book of Acts. Just think about for a moment where we've been and kind of some of the main characters throughout Acts. Um, Peter is highlighted, right? We've seen a lot of him. We've dabbled into the life of Paul. We saw his conversion on the way to Damascus. But now, here in Acts 13, it is a distinct change. It's like the the spotlight is moving directly upon Paul. So throughout the rest of Acts, Paul is going to be kind of the main character, as it were, that we're going to be interacting with, beginning right here in Acts 13, verse verse 1. Well, with all that said, in light of where we're at, um, as I was reading this particular passage, I was reminded of of how my father raised me when I was growing up. Let me explain. And if you know me and my father, we are, we are different characters altogether. Uh, growing up, I was taught to uh, hate war. Uh, to my father's credit, he did show me like, the brutality of war and the value of human life. His opposition to war was, was clearly seen. So if, like, if you come over to my parents' house in Dubuque and you go downstairs to his art room, there's a door that leads to the art room. And on the door is nothing but like anti-war, anti-nuclear bomb stickers everywhere. I'm not making political statements, just telling you kind of what it is. And it's, it's like, that's just who he is. He's, he's still the hippie who's protesting, you know. He hasn't changed. Even if you believe you know, war is necessary, perhaps World War II would be a good example of that. Surely, we can agree war is ugly. That's one of the things my father taught me. War is ugly. Soldiers die in war. Innocent people often die in war. Again, not an opinion, just kind of pointing out the facts. Simply calling it what it is. On one side, you have an army of people who's trying to kill the other side. After I became a Christian, so fast forward many years from my childhood, I remember hearing a a children's song which teaches kids they are in the Lord's army. If you grew up in a Christian home, it's likely you've heard this. I'm not going to sing it for you. Uh, Someone was teaching my kids this song. I had no idea. I had no idea this song existed, right? I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And then some thoughts went through my head when... Uh, somebody was teaching my kids they are in the Lord's army. Um, I thought to myself, I don't want my kids in any type of war. Uh, I'll go to war for them before they ever have to go to war for themselves. Are you kidding me? What are we talking about here? 
when I first heard this song, I, I was taken back simply because of my disposition and how I was raised, right? Just, um, just my disposition toward war in general. But as I've grown older, I understand what is being communicated through that children's song. I've come to see what it means to be a Christian at war against an enemy. I've come to see the importance of being equipped to battle against a foe that wants to tear down every Christian foundation in the home and in the church. I've come to see that your personal relationship with God is being attacked every single day. I'm not a fatalist at all, but I think we all can agree. We battle for greater faith and what we battle against, our own sin, but also an enemy. There is an adversary for all Christians, and he is at war, which means Christians must fight back. Indeed, there is a battle between good and evil, between gospel-advancing proclamation and lies sown by deceit and trickery. But the way Christians fight back might not be what you initially think. In other words, the analogy of war breaks down when trying to describe the war Christians face every single day. This passage this morning from Acts 13 makes several points which we, I think, need to be aware of and we can apply to our lives. Here are a few. Like I already said, this passage tells us about a battle that takes place in a war between gospel-advancing proclamation and Christians who are doing that and the lies sown by deceit and trickery. This passage also tells us what we can expect if we, if we want to be a Great Commission church. What do I mean by that? If we want to be a church that is about the business of taking the gospel to homes, to schools, to workplaces to parks, wherever the Lord leads us. And the last, this passage tells us the significance of the Holy Spirit as we take the gospel to others while facing opposition that comes our way. So leading up to this battle that, I, that, that we read in verses 12, or excuse me, 4 to 12, we do read how the church arrived at this conclusion that Barnabas and Saul were to be the people sent out to proclaim the gospel. The first three verses, I think, are very instructive. Here's why. There was a tremendous amount of diversity at the church in Antioch. Listen to the cast of characters mentioned in verse 1. We have Barnabas, who was not a native of Antioch. He hailed from the island of, of Cyprus. We have Simeon, who is called Niger, which means black. Simeon would, would have been culturally and racially different from Barnabas. Interestingly enough, some scholars think this is the same Simeon who carried the cross of Christ while he was marching up to Golgotha, Mark 15. We have Lucius of Cyrene, who would have also been considered an outsider. He was also black and from Cyrene, which would have been like modern-day Libya in northern Africa. The fourth person excuse me, mentioned is Manian. 
He is an interesting inclusion because he was a lifelong friend of Herod. Like, how did he get on the list? He's a man who would have known war and seen the brutality of war. Last but not least, we have Saul, the formerly zealous Jew who had been saved by the grace of the gospel. I take time to highlight these five people to show the diversity in the early church, in particular here in Antioch. These men from different backgrounds, cultures, races, all united in Christ and with a fire in their heart to see the gospel go beyond Jerusalem, which is where we've been, beyond Judea, which was where we've been in Acts, and Samaria. These men, along with everyone else in their local church, have been conscripted to spiritually fight in the Lord's army. We also read of another person present in the church of Antioch. The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, right there. The Holy Spirit is the most important person present. So before looking at what the Holy Spirit does in the church, let's look at what the other individuals were doing when trying to discern the role that Antioch should have in God's gospel mission. What were they doing? The church in Antioch was not going to rest on its laurels. They wanted to take what God had done in their church and see it done in other places. They're like, this is amazing. You see what's going on? People are getting saved. People of all different shapes and sizes are right here and we're worshiping together. We want to see this message and what God is doing right here in Antioch and we want to take it to other places. We want other people to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So they sought God for direction. It says in verse 2 and 3, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Then you go to verse 3, and fasting and praying. In trying to discern the will of the Lord for their church, they were worshiping, praying, fasting. Now, there's a lot that we can say about worship, prayer, and fasting, but I just want to make two observations. These spiritual disciplines were used as tools of God's grace. This local church, beginning with me, would do well to incorporate the same tools in trying to discern the will of God for this church. That's why I said back in December, hey, we got some decisions to make. Would you be praying and fasting with me specifically on Fridays? Second observation is that these grace tools were done by the entire church. Not just for a few select teachers and prophets. Verse 1. The entire church was invited in. While there should be leaders in the church, I think that is biblical, the church consists of many diverse people with varying gifts who come together corporately to discern the will of God. I say that and I highlight that in light of our celebrity pastor culture where everyone wants to follow the one guy. I have nothing wrong with vision. I have nothing wrong with leadership. Just trying to understand what this looks like biblically. The whole church comes together. So leaders should lead with clarity and conviction, but not without inviting the church into seeking God for direction. 
was the result of corporately seeking God for direction. Barnabas and Saul were set apart to be sent out missionaries to Cyprus. That was the home country, actually, of Barnabas. He's from there, now they're like, hey, we're going to send you back, and we're going we're to have Saul go with you. If you're familiar with the entire book of Acts, you might know that their journey from Antioch to Cyprus is the start of Paul's first of three missionary journeys that we read about throughout the book of Acts. So we got a lot of traveling going on, and this is the, the beginning of that for Saul. But I want you to see that here, this journey, in this journey, Paul and Barnabas did not go alone. God the Holy Spirit was with them. The Holy Spirit, if we can move on to that and how the Holy Spirit fits into these decisions that have been made in this little local church. The Holy Spirit is the rarely spoken about but irreplaceable person in the room. The rarely spoken about but the most irreplaceable person in the room. Now, depending on your context, you may have heard a lot or a little or nothing about the Holy Spirit throughout your life. Could have been like the tag on to how do you describe God, right? Whatever. Now, I don't have time to go through like a theology of the Holy Spirit. But we do see why the Holy Spirit has been sent by God for the church. Here's John 14, 25, 26, when Jesus speaks of the day when the Holy Spirit will fall upon the church in ways that the people of God had yet to see. It's similar to what Ryan said in from uh, John 15, just a chapter, early, chapter earlier. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. This is Jesus talking. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. A purpose of the Holy Spirit is to teach and direct the church. We have seen the Holy Spirit emphasized several times already in the book of Acts. I did this when I was studying Acts. I took my, took my Bible and I just highlighted every time the Holy Spirit showed up. And you would be amazed how many times you'd see the Holy Spirit there with the church. You might remember from my first sermon on Acts when I said that this book could be entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. The implication being the ongoing ministry of the risen Christ is happening by and through the Holy Spirit. So regardless how one wants to entitle this book, the point remains the sending of the Holy Spirit and its ongoing activity is critical. It is vital for the church, and for this church. Even as we consider the battle between God's people and evil, the battle for Christians can only take place when the Holy Spirit is speaking, calling, sending, and equipping God's people. You don't go into battle without the necessary gear. Like You don't show up to a tackle football game without your helmet and pads. I suppose you can, but it's going to be a rough game for you. So as the church was worshiping, praying, and fasting, I'm going to look in more detail what the Holy Spirit was saying and doing. Here's verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, Sit apart from me, 
Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Here is a simple point with profound implications. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks. He has spoken. In particular, He has spoken in the revealed Word of God, but the Holy Spirit continues to speak. This isn't a past tense statement here. There's, a, there's this idea there's, it's ongoing. To drive home my point, I think, I think if I said Barnabas said or Saul said, we'd have an easier time grasping that reality. Why? Because Barnabas and Saul are actual people that we can get our mind around. That doesn't betray our rationalistic sensibilities. We're like, oh yeah, he spoke, he spoke. But therein lies the problem Christians might have when trying to understand the Holy Spirit. He is also a real person who speaks. The Holy Spirit specifically said, and I, and I think he speaks through church leaders, and I think that's a particular case here. He said that Barnabas and Saul were to go west to proclaim the gospel. So the question I want to set before you is, do you believe the Holy Spirit continues to speak? Do you believe God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to you in your prayers? Through his revealed word and through other people in the church? Now, the Holy Spirit never speaks contrary to the character of God. The Holy Spirit does not speak contrary to what He has already revealed in the Scriptures. But He does continue to speak in the way demonstrated in Acts 13. I think the Bible is clear on this point. You cannot read the entire book of Acts or just go to the Psalms. My goodness. And not walk away with the conclusion that God the Holy Spirit continues to speak to his people. We also see that the Holy Spirit can specifically call people to a certain task. So we got, he's speaking, now he's calling. The word call at the end of verse 2 does not mean the same thing when the Holy Spirit has called or elected a person to salvation. That's a, a different Greek word that gets translated into called or elect. Here, call literally means the Holy Spirit summoned them to perform a task, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is like, hey, you two over there, um, I need you to come over here and I have something that I want you to do. I have a task for you. Uh, a long time ago, I, am, I involved myself in coaching. Um, I have coached all kinds of sports. It's something I, I miss. I just enjoy athletics and seeing kids challenged to improve their character and the craft of their sport. If you know anything about team sports, you know coaches like, for example, call plays. And the role of the coach during a game is to think several steps ahead for the players. When I had coached basketball, I'd call a play in the huddle, and then as I call that play for the five individuals, they now have a choice. Are they going to trust their coach and run the play, or are they going to go it alone? Are they going to go rogue? Now, I know there are bad coaches, but generally speaking, the coach knows better than the players. That's what he's there for. The coach exists to see things the players cannot see for themselves. And for the entire team to succeed, 
there needs to be dependence on the coach for what he is calling his players to do. You watch any good team that wins a championship, you see that trust. Again, all analogies break down at some point. But the Holy Spirit continues to call His church into action. The Holy Spirit speaks plays. And He's calling you and me to perform. The question is, again, are you and I listening? The Holy Spirit calls the stay-at-home mom to nurture children and to tell them about the gospel. The Holy Spirit calls a husband and father to speak and demonstrate the gospel to his wife and kids. He calls children to obey their parents while at the same time the Spirit can call a child to open up their heart to the gospel. The Holy Spirit calls the church to be a gospel-centered outpost for its community. So may this church be what the Antioch church was for its region a gospel light in a world full of darkness and lies. And may we, like Antioch, be a church that sends people out, just following the Holy Spirit. Where do you want us to send people? Let's plant more churches. Let's send missionaries. There's a little bit of vision casting here. What do we want to become as a church? What does God want us to become as a church? We can look at what the Holy Spirit was doing in Antioch. The Holy Spirit can call a person and has called people to buy a plane ticket that goes over an ocean to share the gospel with a group of people who've never heard of the name of Jesus. Barnabas and Saul did not get onto a plane, but they got onto a boat. All because the Holy Spirit spoke and called them to the task. In light of verses 2 and 3, verse 4 makes logical sense. The Holy Spirit also sends. That's what we read. I have a couple thoughts about the sending by the Holy Spirit. The first is a theological thought and then some practical thoughts. Here's the theological thought. In what other ways do we see sending in the New Testament? Ask that question to yourself. In what other ways? When I've read my Bible, in what other ways have I seen sending done in the New Testament? Just like what we see here. The the Holy Spirit is sending Saul and Barnabas out. If you already do not know, you might be surprised to see that God, the God of the Bible, is constantly sending. Look at, with me, a familiar passage to many. John 3.16 and verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God gave and sent the son. God the Father sent the Son into the world so that the world could be saved by Him through Him. Jesus was sent into the world on mission to fight against evil, to expose the sin in our heart, to fight for the oppressed, and to offer a way to be reconciled to God through the atoning death of the Son that was sent. If by faith you believe in what the sending of the Son accomplished, then you too are called to be sent by God 
to be ambassadors for God, ambassadors of reconciliation. Christ was sent to tell others about the truth of the gospel. Likewise, you are sent by God to tell others about the same truth. I won't repeat the passage I shared from from John 14, but remember the Holy Spirit has also been sent into the world to aid the church as she is sent into the world to tell people about Jesus. This is what we call in the business a pattern. A pattern we would do well to embrace. So God the Father sent the Son. God the Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit. And now God sends the church with the Spirit. A lot of sending going on. Which means our faith, and now we practice our faith, is active. There's no room in the Bible for passive Christianity. Now here are some practical thoughts about the sending of Barnabas and Saul. They were sent without knowing what lies ahead. For example, verses 4 to 12 in our passage was not on their radar when they were sent out by the Holy Spirit and from the church of Antioch. Their situation reminds me of the calling of of Abraham. We read about this in Genesis 12. Here's the text. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Then we jump down to verse 4. What does Abraham say or what it says about Abraham? So Abraham went as the Lord told him. Abraham had no idea what he would encounter as he went to a people that he did not know, to a land he did not know about. Barnabas and Saul had no idea of what they were going to encounter. They simply obeyed God. I'm going to take this moment to express my gratitude to those who felt called by God to uproot their lives in Minnesota to help plant this church in Iowa. More than my gratitude, you know the Lord's pleasure. For many, I'm sure Iowa seems like or has seemed like a foreign land. Anyone outside the state of Iowa probably feels, that's a foreign land. I grew up here. It's not foreign. I I do not want to dismiss those who have felt the call of God to be in this church after it's been planted, but certainly, and to the point we read in our passage, your actions are a demonstration of faith and obedience to God. You heard the call, and then you opened your heart to be willing to be sent. Churches form because of joyful and radical obedience to God. These things, this doesn't happen. It's like, hey, we're going to go plant church. No, it's God is in it from beginning to end. And he's calling and sending. And I know none of us knew what to expect in this foreign land. But what I do know is that you honor God with your faith and obedience. Here's the second practical thought from Acts 13. The Speaking, calling, and sending by the Holy Spirit is done in cooperation with the local church. 
That's what we see going on here. In cooperation with the Holy Spirit, this church was sent out by another church in Minnesota. And when everything is considered an Acts, I think this is the preferred way to plant churches or to send people as missionaries to unreached people groups throughout the world. The church and the Holy Spirit are the launch pad for gospel mission. So verses 1 to 3 show us a beautiful diversity in the local church, but also a beautiful partnership between God's local church and the Holy Spirit. As the church sought God through worship, prayer, and fasting, God the Holy Spirit was speaking, calling, and sending. What could Barnabas and Saul not foresee when they arrived on the island of Cyprus after they've been sent and they take the boat and they make the journey? What kind of events did their conscription into God's army result in? They encountered two individuals. That's what we read in our text. The first is named Bar-Jesus, who is also called Elamis. The second is Sergius Paulus. Bar-Jesus is a magician, and Sergius was on the pro-council, basically a government position. Sergius heard about Barnabas and Saul, so he wanted to hear for himself what they had to say. It says in our text that Sergius was a man of intelligence, which seems to, to suggest he's a smart dude, just wants to learn. Hey, you got this strange teaching, never heard of it. Could I hear it? Unlike some people... Paul will interact with as we move through Acts. Sergius is willing to hear out what he has to say. But his friend, Bar-Jesus, did not want Sergius or anyone else on the pro-council to come to faith in Christ. He didn't want to lose their ear. He had their ear, and he knew them to be men of authority, and he didn't want to lose his position. Saul sees right through Bar-Jesus and calls him out. Here's verses 9 to 10, which highlight the conflict. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, listen to this, listen to these words. You son of the devil. Woo, that's strong language. You enemy of all righteousness. Full of deceit and villainy. When's the last time someone told, told you, you're full of deceit and villainy? Well, no one. That's harsh. It's like, what are you talking about, man? You will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. It's worth noting that the Holy Spirit not only speaks, calls, and sends, but he also fills Christians to do the work of the ministry. We read that here in verse 9. I'll even add this audacious statement. The interaction in this passage is not possible without the Holy Spirit. Saul, who is now referred to his Roman name, Paul, verse 9, lays down the wood because Bar-Jesus was trying to prevent other people from hearing the gospel. Oh, that's what you're going to do? Oh, I got some words for you. Paul calls Bar-Jesus son of the devil, which is clever because the meaning of Bar-Jesus is son of salvation. Paul corrects his lie. He's basically saying, you, Bar-Jesus, are doing the opposite of salvation. 
Anyone who is opposing the gracious gift of the salvation of the Lord is a son of the devil. The way Paul, but really God, responded to bar Jesus is that, as we read, he caused blindness. So follow what's going on. You're going to prevent other people from hearing the gospel. You are going to be blind. Bar-Jesus experienced the just hand of God. The blindness of Bar-Jesus was not permanent. We see that in our text. I do not know, but I hope that this self-proclaimed son of salvation turned to the only one who holds salvation in his hands, Jesus Christ. I don't know, but I hope that his suffering from blindness actually allowed him to see the mercy and grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I just think the fact that it was temporary tells us something. It gives us an indicator of hope. Maybe the Lord was was making a point. You're going to go through some suffering, but ultimately it could lead to faith. I don't know. The interaction between Paul and Bar-Jesus is interesting to me. Here's why. As I said, being called a son of the devil would have been, it would have felt extreme. Like, whoa! How do you get your mind around that? At the same time, we read throughout the New Testament that we are to love our enemies. How do we reconcile these seemingly opposite reactions, right? Surely Bar-Jesus was an enemy, and yet we hear Paul's words. In our culture, active opposition to the gospel takes on many forms. It'd be easy to create a list of areas where there is active opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could sit here and make that list. I have books on my shelf that lambast Christ and his gospel. I know many people who oppose Christianity and want to bring others with them, which is what Bar-Jesus was doing. He just didn't have a personal feeling about faith. He was like, no, I don't want them to hear as well. So there are times when a strong word is appropriate. What Bar-Jesus is doing is no different than the Pharisees And we know from the Gospels, Jesus had many strong words for the Pharisees. But I think the majority of people are not actively preventing other people from following Christ. There has to be another category here. Therefore, I do think there is an additional reaction to those we may perceive to be our enemy, however we define enemy. It's with love. I think the majority of our reactions to people who do not know Christ is with the love of God. Instead of saying, you are the son of the devil, we can say, you are an image bearer of God. Listen, I do not dismiss Paul's reaction to bar Jesus at all. I do not dismiss the reactions of Jesus and his words against the religious hypocrites. Because what were they trying to do as well? Keep people from hearing the good news. 
off notes for a moment. Think about Matthew 18. When Jesus is chastising his disciples from preventing a child coming to him to, to listen to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Ah, I'm going to put a millstone around your neck and I'm going to throw you into the sea if you prevent one of these little ones from coming to me. Anyone actively opposing the message of Christ and influencing others away from Christ may need a direct and strong word. But you will find that love is going to be the prevailing reaction. Let's never forget that we do live in a broken world. Paul and Barnabas were engaging a broken world. That brokenness still exists. So we should not be surprised by indifference to the gospel or opposition to the gospel. We should not be surprised that an unregenerate person like Bar-Jesus acts upon his sin. We must realize that God has been gracious to us by giving us the gift of faith. We can learn from God's grace by being gracious to a world desperately in need of grace. And what do you do when you feel the effects of opposition? What do you do when Bar-Jesus slaps you in the face? You look to Christ. I truly believe Matthew 5, verse 43 to 45, and either we can back up and talk about the preceding passage, but we don't have time. I think it's relevant in our response, one of our responses to opposition. I'm trying to point this out to balance it out. Not everyone who opposes the gospel needs to be called the son of the devil. Maybe, but not always. Here's another response. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is Jesus talking, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do you hear that? Love your enemies. Not only love your enemies, pray for your enemies. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So yes, we have Jesus calling out the Pharisees. And then we have Jesus saying, love your enemies, pray for your enemies. This passage does not cultivate a victim mentality when the world comes after Christians. Paul never played the victim card. He said things like this, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. Paul is content with insults. He is content with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And he continues in 2 Corinthians, For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's word points you to the opposite direction when you face someone who's not disagree with your faith. Because of what Christ has done through his atoning death and resurrection, there is victory for Christians in a hostile world. There is no woe is me Christianity because Christ has won. All Christians will see with finality the victory of Christ when he comes back. Until then, we are sent out by God to proclaim the word, verse 5, because God has ordained some to seek out God's word, verse 7. And when a bar Jesus comes into your life, you seek God for help as to how to respond. 
and you pray God would save his or her, her lost soul. Loving a broken and hostile world does not mean you cease to teach and preach truth. You do not need to give up your Christian principles by loving a broken and hostile world. The love of God is actually the primary weapon you have in your hand that the Holy Spirit uses to lead others to Christ. Winning a war in the Lord's army does not involve guns and bombs. When missionaries are sent out to a people and culture that does not know the gospel, love, the love of God, is what can open their hearts to Christ. And to be a soldier in the Lord's army is submission to the will of the Holy Spirit as he leads and guides you to preach the truth of God's saving love to a broken and hostile world. And that is what we see time and time again throughout the book of Acts. There's this message that needs to go out, that must go out, a message of love, mercy, and grace. And may we be that as a church. Let's pray.